listening online, we're in, we're in the book of Colossians, and it's been a fantastic book. I've learned so much over the past several weeks about this, this book and this church and, and how it applies to us even today. And one of the things we'll do, um, if, if you have your Bibles or devices or what have you, go ahead and just find chapter 2. We'll be right back in that chapter this morning. We'll be in verses 6 through 15. And I can remember back in uh, 1999, I, I first became a follower of Jesus. And one of the things that um, I, I remember about that, that those first few months and that first year or two, however long it was, I was just on fire. I was fired up. I was excited about everything in relation to church and the church culture and, and, and God's people. And, and I did everything I could to stay close to him everything I could. Went to as many Bible studies during the week as I possibly could. I found the biggest study Bible I can possibly find, and I had that thing tucked under my arm. We used to joke around a little bit. This is before devices. We used to joke around that, you know, Christians need like a third arm so they can lug that Bible around and everything else they were lugging around. So I used to, you know, go to every Bible study, every small group, prayer meetings, prayer breakfasts, you know, uh, Saturday morning gatherings, whatever we can possibly do, buying tapes. Yes, I am that old, believe it or not. Buying tapes and CDs and reading commentaries and reading reference manuals and, and everything I possibly could do. I served in the nursery. I served with the kids. I taught Bible studies. I was teaching the high school group at the age of 17. Kind of weird, right? And, and, and I did everything we possibly could. Here's my favorite part. Even during the worship time, we're fancy today, everybody. I don't know if you knew that or not. Back when I first started attending and helping with worship, I used to change the plastic sheets and those plastic pages on the overhead projector. Yeah, hopefully your eyes are like, I remember those days, right? But I'm sitting here in this little chair doing the sheets. I'm raising my hand, and it's, it's fantastic, Right, So I did everything I could to be with God's people and serve God's people and to serve him. But guess what? Over time, that, that excitement and that drive kind of fades away, doesn't it? And it's not because my love for the Lord or his people faded away. It was just kind of life got in the way. Stuff got in the way. Activities got in the way. Work, school, whatever it may have been at the time. That's what happens sometimes when we have things happen in our lives. Our priorities kind of change a little bit. Our priorities change, and we start to kind of fade away a little bit from what the church has to offer. Other times, maybe it's the culture around us that kind of causes us to fade away. And again, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you probably know this already. This is what we've been talking about over the past several weeks. We've been talking about how, how Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, and he's writing to this church who really allowed this exact thing to happen. He allow, they allowed this thing to happen where, and, and his deep concern for the people at that church was that they were refocused and they were focused on him. He was concerned for the souls of that church. He was concerned for their souls. And because of that, con that concern, he writes this, this letter. And we're going to take a look at a par portion of that letter here in verse 6. We're going to go ahead and start reading this passage now. Verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, 
and not according to Christ. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all his trespasses, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What an incredible passage we're looking at this morning. Here's our main idea from this passage. We are rooted in Christ when we hold on to Christ and Christ alone. We are rooted in Christ when we hold on to Christ and Christ alone. This is, again, another great passage, and Paul here is saying, let's come back. I'm going to bring you right back to Jesus here. I'm going to bring you right back to Jesus. He's making it very clear that we are saved by Christ alone, period. He is asserting here that the finished work of Christ is enough. I think, I think it was John MacArthur who said this. He said, Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. So there's a few observations that I want to um, kind of pull out of here before we kind of dive into everything else. Um, first thing we see here, and I don't know if you caught this, it, it did take me a few uh, studies and, and readings about this, and I'm like, wait a minute, it is. This was, the, Paul gives the, the, the first command that we see in this letter. This first command, anybody know where it is? Verse 6, right? Verse 6, what was it, Pam? Walk in him, Right? So walk in him was the very first command we actually see in this letter. And here's the interesting thing. So he says there, of course, therefore you have received Christ in the Lord, so walk in him, right? So you received him, so walk. Here's the neat thing. If you read it along with verse 7, you see it kind of together. Therefore you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. If you're watching the screen behind me or in front of you online, you'll see that some of these words are bolded, and we're going to see why that is here in just a moment. I want to remind everyone that these two verses actually are the, the verses that make up the theme that we're using in this entire sermon series. Right? Our, our sermon series is rooted. So this is the, these are the theme verses of, of, of this book that we're using. So, there, it, it's, so because of that, I'm going to camp in here in just for a few minutes, uh, probably longer than normal, and, 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 it, and the reason for that is because it's, it's dense with a lot of really practical information on Christian living. So I want to make sure that we see that here. So again, we saw that first command was to walk in him. And um, the rest of these verses, what we see is this progression that, that helps us to mature as saints. There's a natural progression we see here in the maturity of the saints in these two verses. It begins with walking in him, and that happens only after what we've, we've received him right? We receive Jesus. We're able to walk in him. I think this calls back to the idea that, that Jesus himself gave us back in John 15. John 15, he says to abide in me, Jesus said. Abide in me. This idea of abiding 
It, it, make, it means to make up a permanent residence. Make a permanent residence with him, right? So he's, he's really talking about this idea of living with him and walking alongside of him, doing life with Jesus. So we're going to be living with him. And just think about kind of what that means today. Today we know Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And we do know that when he left this earth, he left us with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that neat? So we, we understand here that as Christians, we've received him, and now he dwells within us. I think that's incredible, right? So this is to say that he is present in the life of every single one of you who profess to be Christians. Paul talks about this idea of receiving the gospel already, uh, but notice here the language changes a little bit. He speaks specifically of receiving Christ, right? It's not just receiving the message, but it's receiving Christ. And that's what we see here in this section. He says, and you know, my own paraphrase of it, since you've received him, now you must walk in him. That's really what he's saying in this, in this little area. Another way of looking at this is we need to, of course, live out our faith. We need to be living out our faith. And this can happen, obviously, in a number of different ways. This might make, mean that when we're making difficult decisions based off of some of our life experiences or circumstances that are happening around us. We might have to make difficult decisions because we're living in Christ. That might mean that we need to break off relationships that are keeping our focus off of him. This might mean that we remove a hobby or activity that's in our lives that's taken us and taken our focus away from him. These are not easy things to do. I can recall... I was a, 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 an older teenager when I came to Christ, but I can recall that I eventually had to leave my friends behind because, frankly, they were just no good for me. And some of you have heard my stories. They're definitely no good for me. I didn't want to associate them with any longer. So I had to make that decision to break off that relationship. And again, we see that this is only made possible when we're rooted in Jesus. Paul says that we need to be rooted and built up. Rooted and built up. So what's interesting at first is it seems kind of contradictory if you think about it. It says to walk in him and then be rooted and built up. How can I be walking and rooted at the same time? It kind of, on the surface level, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think it's interesting that this is one single phrase that he's using. And another thing we see here is that once somebody is firmly rooted and has a strong foundation, what happens? And, and we're talking agriculturally here too. Some, it grows. Right? So we see this here that we're able to grow outwardly. We're able to grow in our faith. We're able to grow in our influences. We're able to grow in our reach for the kingdom. And that means it's essential that we're sharing our faith with other people. And we can do that even in a number of different ways, can't we? We can do that in a number of ways. If you're at work and it's time for lunch and you're sitting there, if you all get a lunch break, you're sitting there, you pray over your food, somebody might ask you, hey, what are you doing? And that might open up a small door for you to share Jesus with you and share why you're thankful. If, if you, uh, when you're going through struggles or difficulties in your life, how you handle those things speak volumes about your character and speak volumes about why. Are we bitter about our circumstances or do we have joy in spite of those circumstances? If we have joy, once again, that's a door open for possibly having an opportunity to share your faith with others. There's so many different examples that we can probably talk about. One other thing that kind of came to mind is if you travel, if you're ever on an airplane, 
right? Somebody might be stuck with you for four, five, six hours at a time. What a great opportunity to share your faith and to, to, to rescue a soul. Here's what I would challenge you to do is to ask him to give you these opportunities. Ask him to give you opportunities to share your faith with others. What he does here too, Paul reminds the church that they need to be established in the faith. This idea of established means that they've been fully convinced of the gospel and the man of Christ. They've been fully convinced. That's what that word established means. So throughout this entire epistle, Paul's reminding the saints that they have heard the gospel from the apostles and they have received Christ and because they're full and true believers, they have been fully convinced of that message and of the man Christ. And so because of that, they ought to be what? Abounding in thanksgiving. This isn't the first time we've seen this, isn't it? We've seen this a couple times already. In, in chapter 1, we've seen that in verse 3, where Paul himself expresses his thanksgiving for the saints. And we also see in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, Now you all be thankful. You all be thankful for this faith that you have received. I would argue, and, and don't, you know, in, in, a, in a very small way, at, a, at the very least, that's how we can express our faith is, is in thanksgiving and just being thankful for that gift of salvation. If nothing else, just be thankful for that gift of salvation. Paul's exhorting the church to live out their faith, as we've seen already. There's a reason that he puts such an emphasis on this in these first couple verses in this passage. And if you know Paul at all, and you know his writing, that probably means there's something coming up. There's going to be a left hook that comes out of nowhere, and he's, gonna, he's setting up a warning. He's setting up a warning that we see in verse 8. Every single week, it feels like there's a, a, a verse or a small passage in, in these letters that are kind of challenging or interesting or something, and I would argue verse 8 is that for this week. Verse 8, we see these words, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, some of your translations might say principles, of this world and not according to Christ. There's a lot of interesting things here, but what I would say to you immediately is this is a callback to what we saw last week in verse 4. If you recall verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul's been setting this up all along. The language in the Greek is, is actually a lot more powerful than what we see in our modern translations, particularly in the ESV that we're reading today. This idea of see to it is kind of weak in the English. It really means beware. It means beware, be on guard. It means that, that we need to be paying close attention. It's a strong warning that Paul's giving here. It's a strong warning against and for these, for these false teachers. It's the idea of, of taking you captive to be led astray as, as, a, as prey, right? So a, a little bit of what Paul's talking about here is that these are predators, predators that are trying to lure you away from Jesus by adding other more attractive things to it and taking you away from that truth. And there are also hints in this language of robbing or plundering. So we, when we look at the word, it's, it's very, very strong language. He's saying don't let everybody rob you or lure you away from what you've already received in Christ Jesus. And, and we see that this was done by philosophy and empty deceit. And this is done through human tradition 
and according to the elemental spirits or principles of this world. In its most simple definition, the idea of philosophy is the love for wisdom, or the love of wisdom. That's the most simple definition you can find on, on the, the word and concept of philosophy. Now, of course, we know that, that wisdom's not a bad thing. If you read the Proverbs, you see that this was something that we should be thriving for, but there's a specific type of wisdom that we should be thriving for. But we also see in the story of Solomon, 1 Kings 13, we see that Solomon prayed for wisdom. And what was God's response? God was actually pleased with this. So not only did he give him the wisdom, but he also gave him more wisdom than anybody that preceded or followed him. And he gave him riches. And he gave him power. So wisdom's not a bad thing. And Paul just talked about it just last week in verse 8 and 28. He talked about it then, that there's this idea of wisdom that's imparted to you through your understanding of the scriptures. So he's not warning us against wisdom. He says, don't be fooled by this other type of wisdom that others are trying to seek and pull you away from Jesus. And, and I think that's what we see here too. This idea of elemental spirits that we see in verse 8 as well is kind of interesting. What, what we see what Paul's talking about here is there's really several possibilities, and that, that makes it kind of difficult because it's a word that's used and it could mean certain things. Um, the first thing it could mean is that it, it might be just the basic elements of knowledge. And in and, and some studies that I did this week, it's almost literally like the ABCs. Right? It's the very basic foundational. The other thing it might refer to are the min, uh, material and physical aspects and elements of the world like fire and water and the earth. Another possibility is it's referring to these spiritual powers, like demons and angels. And there's, there's hints of that really all throughout this entire epistle. It's really difficult to truly understand exactly what Paul is talking about here, but there is a little bit of what we call internal evidence. First thing we see is at the very end of verse 8, where it says, not according to Christ. I think that's the strongest thing that we can see here that helps us to understand. It's almost like he's saying, whatever the influence you're getting, if it's not according to Christ, don't pay attention to it. It's meaningless. It's false. So that's a little bit of, I think, what he's talking about there. He, he's going to talk a little bit about in this next section, he's going to talk about, you know, uh, traditions of man, right, or human traditions. He's going to talk about circumcision and baptism. We'll get to there in just a few minutes. Um, and then later, what we'll see next week in, in verses 20 and 22, he talks about, again, regulations, and he's talking about human precepts and teachings. So he seems to really be focusing in on these human teachings, and, and what, you know, we see that same word a little bit later. So I think what his primary point is, regardless of exactly what he's addressing, what, which would likely make more sense to them than it does for us today, I think regardless of what he's saying, the main point of that specific message is that if they're not according to Christ, you cannot pursue it, right? It's not something they can continue to pursue. So all that being said, here, here's what I want to do this, the rest of the morning. This next section kind of gives us what I would call like the antidote to being led astray. And uh, maybe we'll say it a little bit more clear here as it is in your outline, uh, how to stay rooted in Christ and Christ alone. So how do we do that according to what we see in this passage? First thing we see here is that we must be full in Christ. We must be full in Christ. 
I think he, Paul makes it very clear in verses 9 and 10 that, the, that Christ is the fullness of God and that Christians had been filled with him. This idea of, of uh, this verse, really, in this section, number one, it points us to Christ's deity. We see that here. But it also points us to the finished work of Christ to those who believe because his death and his resurrection has made us whole that his death and his resurrection aligns us with God's will. His death and his resurrection saves us from eternal punishment and eternal wrath. And it's for those who believe. This idea of fullness paints the picture that we're complete, that it's done, it's complete, it's full, the work has been finished. So logically, if something is completed, there's nothing more to be added. So Paul's, again, saying very simply, don't add to Jesus. Christians, I think we fall victim to this sometimes. And I'm guilty of it, too. I have my favorite commentators and my favorite authors and my favorite sermon, you know, uh, preachers. I fall victim to that, too. And I think we do that sometimes. We'll align our view with those people. And it's, it's that way or no way. Right? I think we do that sometimes as well, um, or various interpretations of a certain passage or doctrine or what have you. I think we fall victim to that too. So with that, I think Paul is also helping us to see, and he's warning against this. And our second point is that you know we have to be very careful when we don't fall victim to human tradition. Paul talks about two specific traditions here, and these are church as well as human traditions. He talks about two in this next section, and I just want to make sure it's very clear. None of these two things are bad things. None of these two things are bad things, but he does seem to be warning against them. Paul is simply making the point that the work that's been completed in both circumcision and in baptism is the work of the Lord, and it's only made possible in Christ. He's not arguing against it. He's arguing that these are things of the Lord. So in verse 11, he says that they're not circumcised by hands. And I would say this is, this is a callback to several Old Testament and New Testament passages that help us to see that circumcision of, uh, that speaks to circumcision of the heart rather than circumcision of, by the hands. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 comes to mind when we're speaking about this subject. And he says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So even in in the Old Testament, it talks about this idea of the circumcision of the heart. We see that in Jeremiah. We see that in Ezekiel. And, And I think, too, what we see is this is also played out in the very early church. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, speaks to this exact issue. And, and it talks about this outward expression of, uh, or condition of, of circumcision as a, as a mode of salvation. And Paul's saying, no, no. He's talking again in verse 12 as well about being buried in baptism and raised with Jesus. And here's the key part. How that's done is in the powerful working of God. That's the important part of that. It's in the powerful working of God. Again, he's just hyper-focused on this point. So Paul talks about this idea in, in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, amongst other places, but we'll only talk about that one verse for now. He says this in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen: For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. 
we were all we were made a drink of this of one spirit. Paul's saying that once we are are become Christians and we profess our faith in Jesus, and you know he's saying that we are baptized in Christ that moment that we believe. The moment we believe, we're baptized in Christ. So he's saying this is not about a physical action. It's more about how our hearts are changed. It's a, it's that internal change of heart in Christ by God's grace. And then finally, the third point here is that we, ought, we need to deny the old nature. Paul directly speaks about this here. I love what J. Vernon McGee said on this. He said, salvation is not the improvement of the old nature. It's the impartation of a new nature. It's not improving the old. It's, 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 it's giving you a new nature. Think about what the old nature consists of. It consists of old habits. It consists of old desires. It consists of old temptations. So we're to put away these things. And I won't camp on this too much because we're going to talk about this in, in probably some good detail just in a couple of weeks in this same epistle. And I don't think we can continue without focusing in on those last several verses. In those last several verses here in this section, verses 13 through 15, it reads this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. Clearly, again, what we see is God is the primary actor in this entire process. We are participants and he allows us to participate. We are made alive in Christ. We were once dead, now we are alive. Right? Walking in him and being built up in him. This whole section, if you really look at it closely, is a call back to the crucifixion. Notice the careful language that Paul uses here. He says that Christ canceled the record of debt. This is a, a, a likely reference to the Old Testament law. And, and in that law, we know we cannot keep that law. And these are human traditions, in a sense, that were really made, you know, uh, twisted by the religious rulers and the, and the religious people of that day. And it was those same rulers of that day that took Jesus captive and, and, and put him over to the Roman law so they can be, he can be sacrificed and, and crucified. It's these very men who, who were supposed to protect the law who sent over the men who fulfilled the law. And this record of debt was nailed to the cross. And I love the imagery here. Recall that they nailed Jesus' charge against him just like they did in the Roman culture. They nailed it above him as his charge. And this says here that the record of debt was nailed to the cross. Christ took on our debts. Christ took on our trespasses when he died for us. In verse 15, Paul calls out these very leaders that sent Jesus to that cross. And through the resurrection of Christ, he says that he, we were made victorious over death and victorious over that because of the work of Christ. So Paul's pleading with the Colossian church, don't, don't walk away. 
Don't walk away from what you've received. Don't walk away from the finished work of Jesus. Get rooted and walk and be built up. So a quick reminder, our, our, our main idea from this passage is we are rooted in Christ, and when we hold on to Christ, in Christ alone. We're rooted in him when we hold on to Christ and Christ alone. I'm convinced that there's at least two things we can do this week, today, that can help us to hold on to Christ and him only. So how do we do that? How do we hold on to Christ alone? First thing I would say here is that we need to evaluate our relationships. We need to evaluate our relationships. Who are you spending your time with? Who are you involved in, in, in just when you're just hanging out? Are you in fellowship with other believers? Are you, do you have a, a spiritual mentor that you can reach out to for counsel and advice or just somebody who can pray with you and pray over you? Do you have close relationships with people that can build you up? If you don't, and, and you're hanging out with people that aren't may, maybe meeting that, uh, that description, I would prayerfully consider what they're feeding you. I would carefully consider what you're receiving from them. And I would pray for God's wisdom in those relationships to help you to move forward and, and understand what he wants from you in those relationships. The second quick thing here is that we need to evaluate our resources. A few minutes ago, I mentioned the fact that a lot of us have this idea of, of going to a certain preacher or a certain book or a certain this. And again, none of those are horribly bad things. But is that what's primarily feeding you? Right? Are we, are we finding our solace and, and our understanding of the scriptures through those resources alone? Where are you getting spiritually fed? And are they reliable? And how would you know that? How do you know if they're reliable sources? So I think it's, it's important that we must be careful on what we're putting into our minds, whether through books or preachers on TV or podcasts or any other resource. What are we putting into our minds that doesn't point us to Jesus. And if they don't point us to Jesus, again, I would prayerfully consider wisdom, God's wisdom to understand how to proceed with that. Look, I don't know where you are at this week. I don't know where you are currently in your, your spiritual walk with Jesus. But here's what I would tell you. I want to know where you're at. Pat would like to know where you are. Steve, Joel, and Lauren would like to know where you are. Help us to, to walk alongside of you in this journey, this difficult journey where there's a lot of outside influences. That's why it's important to be gathered together. That's why it's important to be led by a group of men who would want to see you spiritually mature and grow in your faith. So let us know that. Let us know, because like Paul, we too are concerned about your spiritual maturity. We too would like to be a part of your walk with Jesus. So help us and let us be a part of that equipping. Let's pray. Father, I do pray, God, that you provide to us any, any understanding um, and help us to just remain hyper-focused on you and on your word and in your word. Help us to grow individually, but also corporately as a church, as a people of God, Help us to realign any of these things that might just take our focus off of you. And that could be so many things. And, and maybe that's 
maybe somebody in this room or somebody who's watching online, maybe they're struggling with something that's taking their focus off you. So God, I just pray that you help them to, to be open about that, to seek you in prayer, to reach out to a, a brother or sister in Christ that can lift them up and that can help them to develop a reliance that's so needed and a reliance on you through your son Jesus and the finished work that he did. We're grateful for that work, God, and, and, and may us and allow us to be abounding in thanksgiving like we see here in this passage. Help us to be abounding in thanksgiving for the faith that you have given us, for the life that you have given us, and help us to, to, to seek you and your kingdom first. And everything will be added. That's what your scriptures tell us, and we're so grateful for that. So help us to do that today, God. Help us to do that tomorrow and the following day and any day that you provide for us thereafter. Help us to do that, God, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.